Good morning. Special thank you to the Rappaport family for sponsoring the shear this morning. They're doing so in honor of the yard site of Rabbi Rappaport's father, Harav Menachem Mendel ben Shlomo Meir HaKohen. His neshama should have an aliyah. Topic here is really part two of our discussion of a nation at war. And now, well, last week we spoke more about ancient warfare and some of the, the process that took place that we find in the Chumash as to the different forms of milchama, milchemes mitzvah, a war that's viewed as obligatory, milchemes rishus, a war that's viewed as somewhat optional, and we explained what an optional war might look like and why why uh, a nation would choose to wage an optional war. And then we saw the Rambam who spoke about the mindset of every soldier, what's going through his mind, the idea of being able to have a disconnect from some of those very natural human emotions, not thinking about his wife and children, but being solely focused on the mitzvah of Muhamma that's at hand. Today we go into some moral dilemmas, and obviously right now what's on our mind is the issue with the hostages, and the Mitzvah Shem will have to devote, I think, a couple of shirim to that, because it's a broad topic, and there's almost a part of me that doesn't feel comfortable discussing it right now. It's too close to home to sit back here in Boca and talk about the academic issues and going through the Makoros and pros and cons and risks and benefits, I, I don't feel comfortable doing that. But maybe in a, in a week or two, we could go through some of those makoros together. For now, though, I want to focus on two areas of moral dilemma that comes up in, in most situations in a time of war. And this has obviously been one of the main uh, points of discussion in our present war. The first is the issue of revenge versus survival. If somebody attacks you and they commit atrocities, brutal, devastating carnage, obviously there's a desire to destroy them, right? to get revenge. And we'll see that it's pretty clear that's the right thing to do. When an enemy comes in and they cause harm to you, the proper moral conduct is not to turn the other cheek, but to pursue them and destroy them. Now, the truth is, this goes back to a conversation that takes place in this upcoming Parsha. Dina was abducted by Shechem, and then we know Shimon and Levi make the decision on their own without consulting their father they make the decision to go and in order to get Dina back, they destroy the entire city of Shechem. What was Yaakov's response? Achartem literally means you've, you've made dirty, you've spoiled our perception amongst the other tribes living here in the land. Bikanani, Baprizi. 
V'ani misay mispar, I, meaning we, our family, were few in number. V'nesfu alai v'hikuni v'nishmanati aniu beisi. And what's going to happen now? The other nations, the Kanani and the Prizi, they're going to gather together against us and they'll destroy us because of what we did to the city of Shechem. So was Yaakov telling Shimon and Levi, I think you made the wrong moral decision. How can you go in there and kill those people? Was he saying that? No. It sounds like and this is also clear in Parshas Vayechi, where he gives the bracha to Shimon and Levi, he never disagreed objectively with their decision. It could be, and we'll explore in a moment why, it could be in a vacuum that was the right move, to go in there and destroy the entire city of Shechem. His one argument is, what you did was foolish. Strategically, you're going to incite more hatred against us, and now you're going to have the Kanani and the Prizi join together and try to destroy us. You're putting us into a situation of Sakana Stafashos. You're risking our life. That was his claim against Shimon and Levi. What did they respond back? They said back, listen, what are we supposed to do? Do we allow our sister to be treated like a Zona, to be taken advantage of? Now, superficially, it's a hard conversation to understand because Yaakov was coming with a very precise, calculated issue. Your decision was strategically incorrect. And what's the response back? It sounds very emotional. Well, no, but if this decision is going to endanger the entire family, then there might have been a different move. What's that? <clears throat> so that's true, and you always have to make that calculation, risk versus benefit, but they're not giving an argument, or so it seems, as to why they felt what they did was strategically correct. What are they saying back to their father? Uh, that's hard to accept. To say that what they did was so terrible, we're therefore going to do something that will cause us to all be destroyed, potentially. So they had to get the hostage out. Arguably, though, they could have done that in a different way. And I think, what's that? Well, they had the manpower to destroy the entire town. They probably had the capacity to go in it. Let's do this. I want to take a look together at Orchaim and the Malbim. Right, two separate sources that seem to have the basic same approach. The Orchaim writes as follows. How, how are they responding to Yaakov's concern that this might bring dis- destruction to him and his family? So one answer of the Archaim is, They were answering their father back as follows. To the contrary, It's more of a danger to us if the other nations will see that some lowlife could come in and abduct 
one of ours and do whatever they want. If we were to allow this to happen with not, without acting aggressively, so then that itself would be more of a danger to our survival. Through our decision to go in there and destroy the city of Shechem and get back Dina, that's actually protecting us in the future. So Archaim is explaining, it wasn't just an emotional response. It was their argument as to why they felt, strategically, this made the most sense. Because what does the world of barbarism actually appreciate on some level? Strength. (laughs) Strength. That's why uh, Isaac Sher writes that when was it that Avram Avinu was appointed the Nasi of the ancient world, the leader of the entire known world at that time? At what point in his career? After the war, when he devastated the four kings. Everything else he accomplished in spirituality, okay, looks like a holy person, a well-meaning guy, but once he was able to express the strength that he had, that's something that everybody appreciates. So that was the response of Shimon Levi, and the Malbim seems to say pretty much the same thing. They were saying back to Yaakov Avinu, because we are small in number, and we are foreigners here. And they started up with us by taking our sister and treating her like a zona. If we remain silent, then they'll continue doing as they wish. We have to demonstrate to them that we have the power and we have the fortitude to take revenge when somebody or some nation uh, attacks us in that way. Now it's interesting, the, the Medrash Tanchuma, and we quoted this before, where it speaks about the obligation of if somebody is approaching you and they're trying to kill you, you're obligated to defend yourself. You want to ask him maybe if he wants to go to the library? So where do we learn that concept from? That if someone is coming at you with intent of killing you, you're obligated to defend yourself by killing them first. Says the Benesh Hashem, there is a command given to wage war against the Midianim. Lama kitzorim heim lechem. Pasuk says, because they're waging war against you. What is this referring to? What point in history? This is after they were responsible for the death of 24,000 members of Kalal Yisrael. So at that point, Hashem says, wage war against Midian, because they're waging war against you. Mikan, from here we learn, If someone's coming to kill you, you have to get up first and kill them. What's somewhat troubling about using this mitzvah as a source for this halacha? They got massacred first. Right. In the case of Midian, it sounds like Hashem was telling Kalal Yisrael, because of what they did to you, I'm commanding you to take revenge. Okay, 
how could we derive from there that if someone is actually in pursuit of you in the present, that you're obligated to kill them first? That sounds like a very different case. Now I assume the Medrash Tanchum is getting this from the, the grammar of the Pasuk. The Pasuk says, Kitzorim heim lechem. It doesn't mean because they afflicted you in the past, but it's describing what they did in the present tense. They're attacking you, and therefore I'm commanding you to attack them. So the actual mitzvah is not presented as a mitzvah of revenge. It sounds like it's saying, because they're going after you, you have to go after them. Okay, so that might be the grammar of the Pasuk, but conceptually, how does that make sense? It already took place. Now it's just Hashem telling Klal Yisrael, take revenge against Midian. If, if, there's reasonable, if there's a reason to believe that they're actually pursuing you, there's no reason to pretend and turn the other eye and say, oh, okay, let's just wait until people actually die. The other cheek. Then, okay, I'd like to. In other words, there's no need Matthew to... Matthew 14, 7. <laughs> there's, there's no need to actually count how much blood they actually spill, but if there's reason to believe that it's going to happen... Okay, so it's that, that basic idea, but I think what we see from this matter, Sanchuma, is very much in line with the argument of Shimon and Levi, according to the Orachim and the Malbim. Namely, it's true. What they did to you was already done. And maybe right now they're not waging war against you. Right? They accomplished their mission. However, if you don't attack them, if you don't take revenge now, so then it will continue. I view it as if it's happening in the present tense if you don't show them a strong response. So it's, it's very intriguing, the entire halacha, at least according to Medrash Tanchuma, of someone's coming at you, make sure to kill them first. That's learned out from a time in history we were commanded to take revenge. So sometimes revenge could actually be viewed as self-preservation, as survival. And we find this idea in the postcom throughout the centuries. One unfortunate aspect of topics like this is that there's no dearth of conversations throughout all the centuries of, of Yiddishkeit. Because these types of things would come up all the time. How do we respond as a nation? How do we respond as individuals? There's a tshuva here of the Tzemach Tzedek. Going back a few hundred years, a couple hundred years, where the question was posed as follows. This is source number 12. Case was that a Jew was killed on the road, and we know who the murderer was. A non-Jew, we know who he was. And we have the ability to take revenge. We could track him down and kill him. If one of the relatives of the person who was killed, if they want to take revenge on the murderer, Questions like this. We know generally there's a halacha of Goal Hadam. And the classic case of Goal Hadam we find in Chumash and the Gemara Makos is where you have another Jew who kills someone through his negligence. Right? It wasn't through malice, it wasn't mazed, it was through negligence. He wasn't being careful. And that led to the death of another Jew. So there there's a halacha, he has to go to one of the Ari Miklat, 
And until he gets there, the Goel Hadam, one of the family members, has the either right or perhaps even mitzvah, that's a discussion in the Gemara, to take revenge and kill him before he gets there. Question regarding this case is, can we force one of the family members to take revenge, to find that Rotseach, track him down, and kill him? One more line here. And let's say the guy, the family member says back to you, the truth is, I weigh 135 pounds, and I'm an accountant. <laughs> and I've never raised my voice in my life. Okay? So like, I'm not sure I'm the guy to track him down and pretend to be Rambo. It's not going to work. So the question that was posed is, okay, so maybe you can't do it yourself, but like any other mitzvah, for example, you have the mitzvah to teach your son Torah. And if I can't do that myself, either because I don't have the background or I don't have the time because I'm working, then you have to hire a malamed or you have to pay a school to do that for you, to make, to make others your shliach. Maybe the same halacha would apply when it comes to a goal hadam situation. That you have to hire a group. Yes. Well, we're going to see more as to why other people would care to force him. Meaning, why, why would I care either way what the, the korov, the family member, wants to do? Maybe he has a mitzvah gol hadam, maybe he doesn't. And if he does, and he chooses not to fulfill that mitzvah, that's his, that's his cheshbon with Hashem. Why do I care? We'll see why we care. <coughs> so, I, I cut off a lot of the tshuva, just for the sake of brevity. But he does have a whole elaborate discussion as to whether or not the halach of Goel Hadam even applies in a case where the murderer is a non-Jew, and it's not through negligence, he's doing it, he did it on, on purpose, and his basic answer is yes, it does apply. Okay, so can we force one of the family members to either he himself track down the murderer or force him to hire a group to do so? Writes the Tzemach Tzedek, V'nachon hu she'oson hotzos ha'yeserim al harogil. He says as follows, Generally, if you have to perform a mitzvah, but it costs a lot of money, how much do you have to pay? To fulfill the mitzvah, you have to pay a chomish, 20% of everything you have. If it's more than 20%, then you're potter. Right? The classic example, the only lulav and esrog available for purchase <laughs> happens to be $450,000. And that's more than 20% of my overall assets. I'm potter. I'm potter. So do you make the same calculation in this particular case? We're assuming it's a mitzvah for the family member to take revenge. So maybe it's the same cheshbin. Up to 20% of everything you own, you have to pay to hire this group of mercenaries. Says the Tzemach Tzedek, no, we're not that machmir. Because we're afraid people won't do it. Rather, we make them pay what's normally given to hire an assassin. Whatever that may be. However, if there's more that's needed, for example, there's bribery, there are other connections that need to be made through money, so that we collect not from the individual, but rather from the community. Right? Can you imagine the GoFundMe page? <laughs> right? Or the Chesed Fund, scrolling through your board on a Sunday morning, right? What other things are out there in the Chesed Fund? Oh, shul, base Medrash, 
Ooh, this one looks geschmack. Right? <laughs> Next 36 hours, we'll triple your donation. It has to come from the community. Why? Why does he say this? Look at the very last line in the right paragraph. Because if, God forbid, we don't take revenge against this murderer, then people will view Jewish blood as worthless. And people will continue to do things like this. And therefore, the reason why it's a communal obligation is because if we stand back and do nothing, then we're all in danger. We're paying for our security. No, no. So in this particular case, it was not. This was Mamish Rotseach. Yeah. Therefore, everyone has to contribute to the Chesed Fund campaign. And then he writes an amazing thing. I thought I had some interesting questions over the years, but when you read about what the great Rabbanim, the great Poskim over the centuries, what they dealt with, it gives you a whole new appreciation and insight. What was the job of the Rav hundreds of years ago? At least someone of the stature that said, he says, We did this many times. <laughs> we would get together in the conference room of the shul with the askonim, and we would hire mercenaries to kill murderers. And even though there were certain cases we knew, there was no way to actually catch that person before we got on his flight to uh, Argentina. Nonetheless, we would still hire mercenaries to chase them. In order that it becomes publicized that Jewish blood is not Hefker. That's the Psaq of the Tzemach Tzedek. Well, he would say that we don't even push someone to pay up to 20% because then they might not actually hire the mercenaries. We make the guy pay what's normal to hire an assassin. We all know what that basically is in that range, right? <laughs> and then the rest we get from the community because we view it as a communal obligation. Question, Eliza. Question and a follow-up question. So it's a, it's a, he's a Yeah, so it's a conversation in the Gemara whether or not the family member is allowed to or obligated. And we pass it. It's a mitzvah. <clears throat> Mm. So, okay, I, I okay. I mean, uh, the truth is, I, I'll, I'll give a 15-second answer, okay. just an idea, which is, there are many times we have Chazal who intervene with the halacha, so to speak, and they say, even though maybe it makes sense, you should have to, in this case, pay at the 20%, we're going to be more mekel for tikkun olam because we're concerned about the overall society and the safety and protection of Jewish communities. So Chazal have the power to come in and say, you know what, you don't have to push yourself that much. We're going to put this on the rest of the community because conceptually we view it as a communal responsibility. <coughs> but there is what to explore. Yes? It sounds like the assassin therefore has to be a non-Jew or going to be a Jew. 
So the truth is, sometimes you have yeshiva bacharim who get antsy in a long winter's man. And now it's ben hazmanim and they need something to do. So like, you know, you have paintball shooting, you have other fun activities, a kosher outlet. This might be a wonderful opportunity for these young men to get some real life experience, you know. Now the truth is it doesn't make a difference. It makes no difference halachically who you hire. Um, it's viewed as you taking care of your responsibility. I would not apply this at home in any way. <laughs> but I want to show you one more tshuva here of the Divrei Malkiel, just to demonstrate that these questions were not only conversations that took place between Yaakov Avinu and Shimon and Levi, but these are things that unfortunately we've had to deal with all throughout the centuries and not that long ago. All these cases that we've spoken about, though, these are all after they've attacked us. We have not yet come across a case where we're, I guess, proactively doing something? Exactly. Right. right now we're talking more about cases that seem like revenge, but the understanding of why we need to take revenge is in order to protect ourselves in the present and the future. Now, you could argue maybe even a preventative strike could fall into the same category. And that's actually one of the ideas behind the Melchemes Rishus, or Melchemes Mitzvah, different interpretations, where they haven't attacked us yet, but we know they're planning on it, or it's a very dangerous, precarious situation, and it could be therefore attacking the enemy first, is also viewed as, as self, uh, self-survival. One more tshuva here of the Divir Malkiel. He has the following question that was posed to him, again in the 1800s. Question was that someone's relative died and the kavura, the burial, already took place. However, they found out clear information that his death was not natural, but he was murdered. The only way to prove this would be through an autopsy. So what they would have to do is go to the, the local court, right, the non-Jewish court, and appeal the case. What they would end up doing is digging out the body and doing an autopsy to prove whether it was of natural uh, sources or it was actual homicide. We know generally doing an autopsy is usr. It's usr based on the idea of nivel hames. We have a mitzvah to show honor to a dead body because the dead body was the home of the neshama. So we view it very much like a Torah scroll. The actual parchment of the Torah is made from the hide of an animal. And the ink is just made from other organic sources. Vegan friendly. Right? There's nothing holy though in the actual Torah. But when you have the osios ha-Torah, when you have the letters of the Torah on the cloth, so that infuses sanctity into the item itself. To the point where even once a Torah scroll is puzzle, you have to treat it with respect, and it requires genesia, you have to bury it. And the same thing is true with a human being. Even though the neshama may no longer be within the guf, we have to treat the guf with covet, and that's why doing an autopsy is usr, it's nivel hames. Now, we know there's a famous tshuva from the Noda Yehuda, where he speaks about, are there exceptions to this rule? Are there certain times where nivel hames would be allowed and even uh, obligatory? So one question that was posed to Yehuda was regarding medical science and knowledge. If a person wants to donate their body for further research, which potentially could lead to new information and could down the road help in preventing or curing disease, is there any heter for autopsy? 
The Nebi Yehuda responds back in the tshuva unequivocally, absolutely not. If there's not a clear and present danger, we don't have a situation where one's life right now is besakonos nefashos, an autopsy is not permissible. However, if you have a situation, right, unfortunately, in my, my sister-in-law's family, she had a, her stepmother's siblings, they died from some kind of mysterious heart disease at a pretty young age, in their 40s or so. And they weren't sure where it was coming from, they weren't sure if it was genetic. In a case like that, if they tell you by doing an autopsy and trying to find out what exactly is going on internally, that could help us derive real information to save you, right? So then, the Nodah Behuda would paskin, it's mutter, that's probably a mitzvah to do so. So the question is, in a case like this, you want to do an autopsy to prove that it was not natural death, but it was homicide. Is that a hetter for autopsy? Says the Divri Malkiel, second, uh, the, the left paragraph here, of Odi Eishlomer, Benino Didon, Ki im lo yorum mishpat al If we don't prove that indeed this person was murdered, and we don't try to take revenge of the murderer, Yedam Yisrael chas v'sholom kehefker. Right? Echoing the words of the Tzamech Tzedek. Then people will view the blood of Jews as worthless. Kiyomru shein mishpat l'horig Yisrael. People will assume there's no judgment, there's no accountability when you murder a Jew. And therefore, in a case like this, Paskins didivri makil, it would be not only permissible, it would be obligatory to do an autopsy to prove that the murder took place, track down the Rotseach, and kill him. There is the operation Wrath of God. Right? Golda Meir instructed the Mossad and the Shinbet that after the Munich Olympics massacre took place, so she gave instructions they should track down every one of the terrorists that were involved with this atrocity, no matter where they all are in the world, and kill them. What was the rationale of Golda Meir? I'm not sure she ever saw the tshuva of the Tzemach Tzedek, the Divri Makil, but she was machavein to that basic idea, to show the world that Jewish blood is not cheap. And she gave the instructions, try to get them all, if you can't do that and you end up only getting a handful, that's also good. It's still sending the message loud and clear that Jewish blood is not cheap. However, and this is where we're going to have to pick up next time, this gets involved with the other moral dilemma of civilian casualties. She said, if there's ever a situation where you know where the person is, the terrorist, but he's together with others, his wife or his children, and by killing him would also kill those around him, don't take that shot. Only if you have a clean shot, then you have to. So what we see, at least from our discussion this morning, is that when it comes to how we respond to an assault, the response is with aggression. It's with aggression, not just as a form of revenge, but as a form of self-preservation, of protection for the future. Now it's true, we never got back to the conversation between Yaakov and his children. Ultimately, Yaakov disagreed with Shimon and Levi. So we have to know what exactly was that machlokus between Yaakov and Shimon and Levi. And we have to assume that if on his deathbed, 
he was still criticizing Shimon and Levi, although there might be a discussion, he was focusing on a different point in Parshas Vaichi. But if he still disagreed with them on his deathbed, that means he didn't buy their argument. So what were they debating? Likely the answer is, they both agreed, Shimon and Levi and Yaakov Avinu, they both agreed to those basic principles that in general, if somebody attacks us, we have to respond in an aggressive, very strong manner to show them that this is not acceptable. And if you do this again in the future, we will totally devour you. Yes, that's Hashkafa Satoru. The only issue in this particular case was, if you go too far, right? If instead of the operation that's presently taking place, you know, someone convinces the IDF, just nuke them. Putting aside the moral issue of that, then you could argue, well, if overall you're going to incite more hate and more venom, then if you respond too strongly, that's also endangering us in the present and the future. So ultimately it's a balancing act. Both Yaakov and his sons were on the same page. You have to respond with strength. And they both also understood that if you go too far and therefore you're inciting the hatred of others, that might cause you more danger in the future. That was the discussion. But the guiding principles are very true. And when we see this not only regarding ancient times, this is true, halacha lemaisa, from the tshuva of the Tzemach Tzedek and the tshuva of the Divrei Malkiel, halacha lemaisa, don't apply these things at home. We'll continue next time getting involved with the issue of civilian casualties. Yes. With the story, did you 